Bissett is a community worker, activist and writer. Between 2014 and 2020, he spent time on a public housing estate in Ireland, speaking to residents about their lives and taking part in their day-to-day activities. This work led to his most recent book, It's Not Where You Live, It's How You Live, published by Policy Press. My name's Jess Miles and I'm speaking to John today on the Transforming Society podcast. Through the lens of the people living on the estate, known in the book as the Bridgetown Estate, the book reveals themes of scarcity, fragility, love and care, sharing, space and time, and the ways in which we navigate the tensions between where we live and how we live. Taking thinking beyond much of the existing theory, John argues that there's more to social reality than the experiences and events that we can observe. He asks us to consider what must be necessary for the existence of a housing estate and reveals how class and gender are the crucial dynamics in the lives of public housing residents. Hi, John. Hello, Jess. Good to be here. Good. Thank you for talking to me today. So... I've read your book and your work feels very human. So I want to try and keep our discussion that way too. Um, I'd like to start by asking you about the people who live on the estate. Can you tell us about who you got to know and some of the beliefs they have and just like what's life on the estate like? Yeah, so it's an estate that was built in the 50s. Um, Dublin has a lot of old public housing estates, say mid, kind of early to mid 20th century and the Bridgetown Estate is one of them. They a, a lot of them. So we had a very famous architect in Dublin called Herbert Sims, um, who was really influential in designing public housing. So we had a really good history, like lots of places in Britain in the in the twentieth century, of building really good public housing. And the Bridgetown Estate was one of those estates. Um, and families moved in in the fifties and the sixties, and um, so. When like when I started the research there, I was meeting people who had spent their whole lives on the estate, who had grown up there, whose parents had moved in as original tenants. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so there was kind of gen- intergenerational family histories. Uh, obviously very strong. Like uh, like the estate in in a way is a homogenous working class estate with all that entails. And given that there are some obviously internal differentiations within the working class. So obviously the way class history shapes out over time is important and it's also important in the story of the book. So you so you would meet older people in their 70s, 80s uh, who told you those stories about coming when the estate opened. Uh, then you would meet people who had just moved into the estate a few years ago, uh, maybe with children or just as, say, single people. Um, and so there's this... Um, elongated history that stretches back over five or six decades and people obviously would also tell you about coming from what we call the tenements in the city because housing in Dublin was just diabolical for much of the early 20th century Uh, and people moved from the tenements into the Bridgetown estate at that stage so um, like the the stories were rich and varied and the people were rich you know had rich stories to tell um and they effectively constituted the core of the book so in the early stages i would have just said okay i'm gonna try and talk to a block of people so i about 30 different people different genders and started with them and did kind of recorded conversations with them 
about yeah what's life like how's it going where did you go to school how long have you been here how do you find living here i've worked in the city for a long time so i know some people so you kind of i got there by way of introduction on a lot of occasions right. yeah and what did they think about the work that you were doing so people are kind of like yeah i'll do that and then they go yeah but i'll never that that, that you know the way it's like everything else here um, I'll never hear about it again. Right. And what's really been interesting recently is we had a big launch of the book in Dublin and yes. a good number of the people who did interviews and participated came. Great. And yeah. they were some of them are given copies of the book uh, uh, through Bristol, really. Yeah. And others came and bought the book. And so the thing came full circle in the end where people... Um, actually got to see the end product and like that was kind of nerve-wracking a bit for me yeah <laughs> because you're kind of going yeah. you know it's, it's it's actually very different to do the re- record the conversation and then to say to somebody hey this is going to be in the bookshop next week maybe yeah or next month or in a couple of months but people by and large uh like would have done a lot of work towards the end giving people copies of the, of the sections of the book that related to them and so on and given them whole chapters and whatever it was necessary. So it seems to have, yeah, it's, it's you know, like the, the whole research cycle has taken a few years, but it's, it, by and large, yeah, we've, we've went in and come out the other end and it seems to have worked fairly well. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. I'm really glad that the guys you spoke to are kind of there at the launch and car- have carried on being part of it all the way through. Um. So moving on to the theory in the book, um, you take a critical realist approach, which tells us to look beyond what we can observe in order to find the real. Can you talk a little bit about that and also about how this allows you to offer a fresh perspective on public housing? Yeah, okay. So um, the book is kind of, it's, it has an introduction, then it has seven or eight ethnographic chapters, which are effectively chapters about people and the estate. And then it has a conclusion. So the beginning and the end of the book are, are kind of engagements, theoretically. I think they're very modest engagements and beginning for me to try and work out some key questions. So, for instance, a big issue here, uh, I'm not so much sure whether it's the same, for instance, in the UK, is... the. the the framing of public housing estates and how and what Foucault would have called a discourse. So uh, and what people come to believe things actually are in their in their own minds. So here the big uh, framing is what we would call deprivation disadvantage. Right. So um, you're given a ranking and a scoring from the state uh, based on, you know, things like unemployment, educational level, um, and social class position, they are, but they are very crude indicators. Uh, usually, they, they don't relate to the broader, uh, say, power relationships within the system, right? So the deprivation yeah. disadvantage perspective is by far the dominant methodology uh, and theory for viewing public housing estates. And one of the things for me is I don't accept it. Uh, I think it's false, and I think politically it has very damaging uh, consequences and ramifications for working class people living in public housing at various different levels. So, for instance, one of the strange things that happens is 
like in in a strange way, the more deprived the place is, let's say, the more money you will get for community projects and services. Let's say, okay, now that's that's been uh, variable with austerity, right? Yeah. But what has ended up happening is communities have ended up arguing uh, the deprivation, playing the deprivation game. Let's say. So say so, and that does very peculiar things to places and people where they go. We we are very deprived, right? Instead of asking key questions, is why are things structured in this way, and how do they come to the to be this way? As, hence the the importance of the title of the book, um, how we live, especially that that part of it. Okay, yeah. So the link with with kind of the critical realist stuff came to me through people like Andrew Sayer. Yeah. Uh, Andrew Collier, Margaret Archer, there's a whole school of uh, critical realist uh, theory, which stems mainly from the work of Roy Baskar, um, who wrote a book called A Realist Theory of Science and various other books, um, and effectively saying that it, to, it, at a very simplistic level, that what we see is not necessarily the case, or what we perceive is not necessarily the case. Okay. So there are deep philosophical arguments between what he calls empirical realists, um, which go back to people like Hume and Locke, and uh, and sort of these ideas of you know sense perception, right? So that the world is basically what we f see it to be, and there yeah. are kind of variations on sense perception so but what Bhaskar's argument really is that there are deeper mechanisms beneath what he calls the empirical and the actual so if we've got sense perception when we've also got events and experiences that we have or are involved in but there are also things that he calls mechanisms and structures right now they're not uh, new in many ways to people who read a lot of sociology or philosophy mm. but his <laughs> argument is that uh, and the reason I think it, it, it's very useful to understand public housing estates is because he asks this question, how do we constitute the object of study, right? Yeah. So for me, one of the key questions is how do we constitute, so, and I'm learning this, I think, as well, is how do we constitute uh, the object, which is, in this case, a public housing estate? And the way it's constituted primarily ideologically in Ireland is through the deprivation disadvantage paradigm. Whereas what Bhaskar is saying, can you please go and look for the mechanisms and structures that would give you a much deeper explanation and, yeah. and truer explanation as to why things are the way they are. So for me, the realist explanation and constitution of a public housing estate is much better and truer. Uh, and of course, that's variable depending on the times we live in. Um, that our knowledge may change, for instance, from what we knew, you know, for... 50 years ago, we may adapt or change our knowledge. But I, so um, critical realism really looks or, you know, pushes uh, the, the envelope, if you like, to get you to think. So for me, the, the challenge to the deprivation disadvantage paradigm is effectively uh, a class challenge, a patriarchy challenge. Yeah. Uh, in other cases, it would be race. Um, the, the, the Bridgetown estate is effectively at at this uh, point in time a uh, homogenous white Irish estate, and okay. the reason it's that is because state housing policies forbid uh, people seeking asylum to be resident in public housing. So, 
but that's in itself that that's also interest that's also an interesting piece to be the to, to be developed so um so this so for me um writing and i i think there are parallels with the works we mentioned earlier there's a much better history and uh, much probably much more radical history in the uk of writing class history and public housing right yeah. Whereas we're trying, to, I think the book here is, and I said it when I did the um, submission to Bristol, that there isn't really a book like this in Ireland, for instance. Right. And it's probably even different to some of the books, Lisa McKenzie's book, Lindsay Handley's, in terms of the, the use of critical realism. But really what it, what it tries to get at is to say, so... In the ethnographic chapters of the book, these are the, the, the sort of manifest phenomena, okay? Yeah, yeah. So things like yeah. scarcity, the reason people need a wage, right? The problems people have with debt, DEBT, yeah. um, all of the, the things that constitute the materiality of their lives, right? Yeah. So my, my argument is that capitalism plays a critical role uh, the uh, critically decisive role in how those lives are shaped. Uh, so when you look at the manifest phenomena, someone else says that's because the people in those estates are innately deprived somehow. They never really explain it that well. Whereas what I'm saying, the book is really saying is actually no, that's not the case at all. The reason the, the Bridgetown estate is constituted the way it is is because historically and currently there are many mechanisms critical to them, which are the economic, political, uh, gender-based mechanisms that shape and uh, condition the way these places can be. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, they, they really uh, have so. So you try to move that way. No, you can't go that way. You try to go this way. No, you can't go this way. Um, so that's a bit of a long-winded answer to, to your question, Jess. But um, yeah, so I, I think probably the, the like Bhaskar says that critical realism is a, is a philosophical under-laborer for sociology, right? Yeah. So part of the yeah. problem with the philosophy of critical realism is that it's short on examples, right? Or practical uh, case studies. This okay. is a practical <laughs> case study, which is, I think it's like the book is experimental, uh, so there's a part of me thinks it needs to be developed much more, right? Yeah. You know, in the sense of uh, like I'm beginning a new piece of work now. Hopefully, um, I don't know what what will become around potentially race and immigration, migration in Ireland. So, um, so I think the key, you know, the core philosophical parts of critical realism and applying them. Is a is a really interesting uh, proposal uh, and piece of work. Yeah, it it goes back to that question that I mentioned in the introduction that you ask in the book about what conditions need to be in place for a public housing estate to exist in the first place, right? You know, the history of housing is so interesting. So, what do you need? You need a homogenous group to place in that place. So, for like, um, like one of the examples that. Uh, Bhaskar gives is that you you you, uh, you can't write a check without having a banking system, okay? Yeah. So so if you you know you if you if you take that example and put it into this context is you can't access public housing without having a public housing system, right? Yeah. And um, which sounds you know self evident, but the 
so the development of the systems historically are probably slightly different in say in Britain than they are here in Ireland. But um, the the key to the development of them is uh, they're for particular groups of people, right? Yeah. Uh, and I even yeah. the so if if you take what the the story I was explaining to you earlier about Dublin, um, there was a chronic uh, housing problem here throughout the twentieth century. So, but the state actually, at certain times in the 20th century, was very responsive to the needs of the working class, right? Was socially, let's say, let's say at some point socially progressive, right? Just like there were lots of, uh, you know, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of social housing units built in Britain post-war because people said, we've got to rebuild, we've got to provide yeah, uh, you know, we've got a mixture of Keynesian economics and Bevan and the welfare state ideas and that and in that case. Okay. Um, so but effectively, it's still within that context and it's it's still within that set of conditions. So it, as the French say, the Trente uh, Glorious, the Torty Glorious years after the war, where uh, things were probably get were, were quite good for a period of time. Um, for people and but the history that we know today says like in the the Bridgetown estate it's kind of embedded in all the stories that things there are clear moments where things begin to change for instance one of the women's story in the book uh, Nadia's story is about like there was a big rag trade right a la Coronation Street Johnny Baldwin I think often about where um like lots of factories, yeah, lot, yeah, lots of small, like maybe some of them huge, right? Which employed four or five hundred people, huge for here. Um, so lots of women were uh, plugged into that system for many years. My sister was one of them, for instance, right? And they worked in those factories. The lifespan was probably 20, 30, maybe 40 years at a stretch. But then they all closed within four or five years, right? Yeah. So yeah. effectively left, just like, you know, um, we mentioned uh, Kaplan's work on the Full Monty and other British films. The same process of deindustrialization takes place where they take all of those industries and move them up to probably to Asia yeah. or anywhere where labor yeah. is cheaper, right? So so this relationship between the people in the housing and the larger economic structures is so important in that sense. So if you, do you know the way, if we use uh, the normal uh, grade, sort of gradations of social class that we use here, for instance, in the census, it doesn't tell you that story. It doesn't understand or not doesn't want to understand how historically class has been conditioned by the way the economy shaped, changed, moved. And then another, like there, there's a few of them in 2008, 2009, like Frank's story in the book reflects another massive schism in capitalism where global uh, hedge funds and uh, investors, to, call, to, put, to put it nicely, um, who were you know, had all, everything stacked within the housing system, all of a sudden go, we're out of here. Frank's an older guy, isn't he? Yeah, so he's in his late 50s and he's burnt out by work in construction and he's been out of work for seven or eight years when we meet him in the book because effectively all of the major construction housing projects closed in Ireland 
for lots of years. And then when it begins to open up a little bit, all of the employers say, no, we're not paying people what we used to pay them. And one of the big issues here today is what we call bogus self-employment, which effectively means that in Frank's case, he's told, no, we don't put you on a tax system. You pay your own tax. You yeah. look after your own holiday money. You look after your own medical issues. Uh, so what happens in his case is he gets 100 euros a day. He's working for two bricklayers, which is phenomenally hard work. He's running the line up and down, up and down the ladders. And when I made him, he's got blisters. He's bore his feet are bad. His back is bad. Um, and he just goes, you know what? I can't keep up anymore. Um, and eventually he ends up in the, uh, the great uh, <laughs> end of life mechanism around the ward now, the men's shed, right? Oh, yeah. so, <laughs> my, my father-in-law's in them. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. which is a great project in lots yeah, of ways. It really but what is. it really yeah. says is, uh, you know, it's absolutely ruthless, right? Yeah. And like there was a young guy, European guy, who was on that side as well. And they had him, he was in his strong guy, but they had him working for like four and five bricklayers, you know. And what they were going to effectively do was say he's going to get hurt or injured within six months, but we'll just get somebody else. Yeah. So, um, the, that's just the callousness of the and the exploitation of workers at that level. So, so this kind of bridge between the the places like the Bridgetown Estate, like St. Anne's, like the Haygate, you know, um. And how they they don't just free float on the landscape. They're plugged into the society, the economy, the educational systems, and they have very, they are conditioned. So like, you know, when you sometimes you write stuff and you go, um, that's the paragraph that I think represents the book. And there's a paragraph in the book and one of the lines in it is something like, these are the people who take orders. They don't have money. They don't own anything. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. They're, they're, so they are in a very subordinate position within within our society and that's what to be working class generally means that doesn't mean that they are not fiery resistant like frank was a very active uh what, what would just in some ways revolutionary trade unionist he said fuck them yeah and yeah. he would just completely uh he'd been on so many pickets and so many strikes um but that doesn't mean that overall capital wasn't winning at the moment when I met him because it probably was right. You know, uh, working class trade union activism or working class movement activism won't suddenly be raise up and go. No, we're not having it anymore. And because there is a there are significant, you know, like we see with uh, uh, Mick Lynch and people in in the UK. So. Um, so that kind of flow of history is critical to those stories as well, you know, where you see, um, and that's what, that's why I would wanted to write a book like this was because I don't see anything like what's in the book in what I'm being told consistently in, you know, like say state-based research, for instance, yeah. right? They just tell a very particular story. It's non-political. It's non-ideological, and of course, it's utterly political and utterly ideological. Yeah. Right? Because purely by the fact that they're telling you, it's not. The book is really about conditions. I think it's about saying 
this sounds very uh, like it's almost like we should know this, but you actually do have to write it down and say, just in case you don't know this, I've written it down. Yeah. <laughs> so this is actually a bit, a bit like you, some might describe it differently, but I'm saying to you, these are the conditions in the public housing estate in Dublin, Ireland at the moment, right? They are very similar to conditions in lots of other places mm-hmm. in the UK, in Europe, in the US, across the world. And it's a problem, right? Yeah. And the, the, it's so down at the bottom of the levels of recognition and acknowledgement. But so the book is an attempt to say, let's start having this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And what I really like about the book is that the ethnography section is kind of, I think it's the biggest bit of the book and it almost stands alone, doesn't it? So you've got all these conversations and stories and the experiences of people like really heading up this main section of the book. And then you apply all like the theory and the thinking and the conclusion. But it is, I think you say at one point in the book that it's about looking for clues yeah. in in the stories and in yeah. your research that indicate these structures and there was one um I just wanted to talk a little bit about the women in the book um because we've talked mm. a little bit about the men and I can't remember exactly but there's one time you were with them and they were looking through clothes mm-hmm. and one of them holds up a t-shirt yeah um what did it say on the t-shirt uh, is it something like in the, even in the darkest of times there there's there's some light is it from yeah. Harry Potter I think it's from Harry know. Potter is it yeah it was it was that kind of phrase and that obviously resonated yeah. with them and then there's this other phrase in the book that's what goes around comes around mm. and that crops up repeatedly and I think someone had it tattooed on their arm as well so yeah and I think it's that kind of thing, isn't it, that gives us an indication of everything that's happening in the background and these structures. Can you talk about that, what goes around, comes around thing a little bit? Yeah, look, I mean, in some ways, there are tropes, cliches, myths uh, that, like, this. I mean, this is one of the, I think, one of the great discoveries for me is the way people rationalise or understand the world and use language themselves, right? So there's a chapter in the in the book called The Word, right? Which is really yeah. just devoted to that, uh, to, uh, I don't know, creativity and stuff. But so, the um, again, it's this, you know, like I'm reading John Holloway's book at the moment called Hope and Hopeless Times. And part of his thing is this idea of richness against wealth, right? Yeah. So yeah. I think there is a huge richness, right? And it, it you, you know the way when you say that sometimes you it's almost like you you want to be legitimized right but i actually think there is a richness which, mm. which doesn't need to be legitimized by anybody it exists on its own terms yeah. and right. so part of that is these conversations that about how you understand the conditions and predicament you're in for mm. you your family your children so uh like the two two phrases there are lots of them that kind of we I kind of use to shape they they obviously shape one whole chapter in the book is uh what goes around comes around and it's not where you live it's how you live and I at one stage <laughs> I wasn't sure whether the book because someone said to me the book should be called what goes around comes around John right mm-hmm. so I kind of was thinking yeah it could and it um I'd probably written a kind of sections at that stage you know the way you frame something based on the on one of the sentences so I did. Um, but really, um, 
they were very interesting provocations to say, so, you know, stupidly you go, so can you explain what that means to me? But people, a lot of the time, use them, say, unthinkingly, right? Yeah. Uh, then we did get into having conversations. What does it mean to say what goes around, comes around? So, um, and, like, I'd often find, so, like, in Dublin, there, there were a very well-known family who uh, were the first people to import heroin in industrial-sized quantities into Dublin. And... Part one of the in the in that particular chapter, we're walking along the street, and one of the women, Rosie, that I'm with, meets another woman, and they talk about one of the people from that major family who had just died, and so the woman who we meet says, because one of her family had uh, been killed in a dispute, let's say, connected uh, to that right. whole situation, and. She says something like, all the people they put in the graveyard, what goes around comes around, right? So for her, she had to be able to say, there's some justice in the world after what happened to me and the family and the actions of other people uh, within the culture. So it, it's a bit like providential, providentiality, providence that things will work out. But of course, the, the real question is that, and in the book is that that doesn't, that's sure, that's not the case at all most of the time. Well, cause around doesn't come around. So we're, we're on the steps one day and I can't remember, there's another story about this absolute head case guy who's very uh, volatile and turns up doogie and um, Rosie says to me, he tried to steal a bike out of my house one day and I told him to fuck off, basically. And she said, you have to stand up to him, right? And I don't know what she, something else she says, What and she says, there's some other part of the conversation, she says, what goes around comes around. And I go, well, the, the banks, I say, didn't, when the banks collapsed and all the bank debt was paid for the bankers, what goes around didn't really come around. And she says to me, well, they didn't really hurt people now, John, did they, right? Because mm -hmm. her analysis was it was a much more direct physical threat to the being, to your being, that was more real, let's say, right, um, than something which was a little, which was approximately much further away. Yeah, of course, yeah. you hear the stories on the, on the news about uh, all of the bondholders, as we call them here, being having their debts paid, Um for effectively <laughs> taking risks that they were supposed to take the risk for, but we ended up paying for those risks. So, um, the there in a way there were really great doorways or apertures into exploring so many things. Like, so it's not where you live, it's how you live. Like, this was really mad. Like, one of the women in the book had this. Or sorry, what did she have? Uh, what goes around comes comes around tattooed on her arm, and you go. Mm -hmm. How do you go to that length to have that on your arm? How? What does that tell you about the kind of um, what stickiness or depth of that phrase and kind of reasoning, right? Let's call it within the culture, right? And obviously, it must be quite deep if somebody's prepared to go and get a tattoo on their shoulder with it, mm -hmm. right? Of course, the book title is "It's Not Where You Live, It's How You Live," and very people would say that to you independently of, of each other like so there's a, a woman in the book yes, 
uh, who ends up working in the hospital. She's worked in various places. She has kids. She's a single parent. And when I, she's talking about her father losing his job at during the austerity years, and she, she and then she's talking about trying to live a dignified and respectable life. On and she had moved off the estate when she had her first child. She she was housed somewhere else and private rented. And eventually she gets back. And we're having this conversation about uh, you know, how are you doing? How are you living? And and she and in this is part of a recorded conversation. She says to me, "Well, it's it's not really where you live. It's how you live." And so, but then on another day, you'd be with a completely different set of people, and someone else would say, and you go, "That's really." mad that it pops up around the place and of course you know the way you don't want to overstate the case let's say but again it was a really interesting exploration of what so if you if you think about someone like Beverly Skaggs's work right and then yeah. on uh, you know class and gender formations and, and class self-culture mm-hmm. where um so their whole so that, that those books are that that idea of respectability, right? Skaggs is a work on respectability. Yeah. So if the whole idea of that uh for them it's critical to the way they live that they are perceived as whatever normal people, good people, respectable people, right? Yeah. So the phrase is a real uh clarion call for respectability in many ways, right? And but but the problem is that uh, just like it is in Skaggs's work, where the broader perceptions of the estate and the way the society treats the estate and how people just unconsciously or subconsciously accept, for instance, the geography of the city where they go. No, we don't go there. That's not our place, right? Yeah. But that yeah. doesn't even so so. If, when someone says it's not where you live, it's how you live, they really want to live out that thing, right? But the problem is they live it out in ways which undermine the statement, let's say, that they yeah, find yeah. But they don't even think about that a lot of the time because it doesn't even occur to them that it's a problem, right? No. So there are... London is on another level, but Dublin is very... There's lots of money in Ireland, right? It's a very wealthy place. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think it's very wealthy, but like I go swimming out at the sea sometimes and the wealth is leaking yeah, <laughs> from yeah, yeah. houses and suburbs of the, of the city, right? Yeah. And But the the thing about the, the this is where the kind of geography part of it is, the where, um, like people live within their own class systems most of the time and class geographies. They, they do go to particular places for particular things and cross over, but they don't cross over dialogically. They don't have conversations. They'll have uh, pragmatic conversations, whether it's in a state agency, whether it's in a shop, uh, but they don't enter into, say, middle-class fields or geographies. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, yeah, I just thought they were... That they were really interesting frames. I was thinking the other day whether they'd, be, they'd become cliched very quickly, but we'll see. Yeah, it's an interesting, um, not conflict, but everything's so separate, isn't it? So you've got these people living on these estates and they're kind of rationalizing it, aren't they? Yeah. To themselves. And then you've got this paradigm of disadvantage. Um, 
where people just see these estates as disadvantaged and that kind of pushes them out onto their own even more. Mm-hmm. So it, it feels like your argument is saying, actually, we have to reconnect everything and um, kind of bring our thinking about public housing estates back into discussions about bigger issues like class and gender. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, go on. Do you want to? I, yeah. I so want... I suppose my final question is how does this thinking and this change in perspective allow us to take the conversation forward? What what kind of conversations would you want to see happen now with a view to just improving people's lives? Like for me, like when you were talking earlier, like when I was a student in the air, I went back. I had served an apprenticeship as a fitter turner here in Dublin. I wasn't very good at it. I ended up working in Australia in construction and in Canada for a while illegally in construction there. Right. Um, and then I went back as a mature student to university. What made and, you want to go back and study? Um, because I was fucked physically. I had injured my back on a very wealthy couple's house in Toronto, lifting a big... Uh, concrete lime a big limestone sill upstairs and sort of went this is a bit of a mugs game really Um, it's you know unless you're very skilled and getting paid very well and so on so I came back to Dublin and I went back to study in Minute and part of that was doing sociology and part of doing sociology was reading books like Paul Willis's book Learning to Labour so for me I was inspired going back to that time by books like that to get involved in all sorts of stuff you kind of went this is really interesting I didn't really get that that's why or that's how you could tell that story so his story was obviously about young people in education mm-hmm. um, um, so this like I, I don't obviously I'm have I'm very limited as an individual I work in, and I'm active with a number with uh, a group called Housing Action Now here, yeah. and we've we've worked on various things. We would work with tenants unions and other. So that's a whole other part of my work and life that I'm very involved in. So I think the two things have a relationship with each other. That knowledge is a key part in any change process. So that people pick the book up and they go, all right. So I'm like one of the as I was saying to you earlier, this thing about people from the estate coming and reading the book, right? Yeah. Now. Um, so one of the things I said on the night of the launch was just if you get frustrated in the first few pages, go straight to chapter two, right? Yeah. But so I think take from the book whatever you want, right? Take the ethnography if that's what you want. If you want, so I'm I'm from a very similar place, right? And I'm saying I've become interested in the theory, right? So there's about three or four of us from the same estate who have all ended up doing PhDs or masters, right? And we're all working class. And what it really proves to me is that uh, it was never about the fact that we didn't have the intellect or the interest. It was about the fact that we never were exposed for many reasons, right? And in working class culture to say ideas, yeah. Uh, books, yeah. uh, theory, that sort of stuff. But, but going back as a mature student, 
I was able to get into that system and world, and I've seen other people having what Joyce would call an epiphany, right? Yeah. Um, this kind of eureka moment where you go, this is unbelievable. Why did yeah. I never or get a, a grasp that things, you know, so I've now I'm penetrated the real nature of social relations in the world, so I know everything, which is a joke, of course. But, <laughs> um, so, but that kind, so... I would think if the book contributes anything to people going, all right, uh, so that, you know, even people's consciousness, you know. Yeah. And like at the launch, people spoke to the book, not me necessarily, who talked to those issues from a feminist perspective, from a class perspective. And people in that room had never been exposed to those conversations before. Right, right. yeah. So they're kind of going, all right, what what does what what does it mean to be working class? And obviously, people like Frank in the book know and were very politicized. But a lot of people don't have a politicized class consciousness. They have a materialized class consciousness yeah. in the sense of they are the big message of the book is class and gender struggles. Because how do I get from the, the beginning of the day to the end of the day, or the yeah. beginning of the week to the end of the week? So, um, so but if people began to think. This is this is I'm not accepting this anymore. Why, not why is it like this? Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, cost of living crisis and so on, and begin mm. begin to maybe think, um, I'm not having this. We're gonna, you know. So there's been a good, really good energy around the book. It's I was in a bookshop here in Dublin last Wednesday that I just went in to check, and she said to me, the book's been going so well, and will yeah. you sign all the copies that I have? Right. She had about eight copies there in the shop, which is mm. usual. Um, yeah. So, look, I, I mean, I didn't, I, you know, the way I didn't write the book with particular audiences in mind. But I I think there's a good section of the book, which is like a lot of like I had my nephew and his girlfriend were here in the house last week. And she was saying to me, mm. my father's just finished the book. And he thought he just he's from a public housing state in the city. And he just couldn't get over it and he's given it to me mother and she's reading it and I was in some I was in where I work on Monday and a woman who was living in public housing struggling as a single parent said to me can you give me a copy mm. and I was kind of going it's very odd like she wouldn't normally say you know she'd be shy enough and I was kind of going that because she said he has a copy but he's given it to his ma and then his wow. dad was going, okay that's amazing so, but that's the dream, isn't it, for this kind of work? Yeah. To be now, like shared and passed around like that and just get people thinking. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. Yeah. So and obviously, you know, the way like one of the big um, one of the really interesting things that's happened is that uh, at the launch, uh, one of the presenters of on national radio here was at the launch because he knew the person who was chairing the launch. Mm. And he said to me, will you come on the radio show? the following Wednesday or something and I did and uh-huh. like par- part of the big like he had co- 200 like not a massive a couple of hundred thousand people listened to the show yeah so um and it's just you know like un- it's really been amazing that you people say to you like in small towns in in Ireland people are saying I went into the bookshop in Trim which is a, a small town mm. and they had your woman was packaging up a copy of it and she was reading a copy of it. Really? So yeah, look, I mean, um, I think it's it's very much connected to the kind of um 
the fact that working class writing doesn't, and especially social science, does not get any. Uh, it doesn't. It's not. It's kind of not legitimate. It doesn't no. get dissemination. It doesn't get. Uh, you know. Um, but look. So yeah, we were we're struggling on that one. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's this kind of thing that helps move things forward a little bit as well. And there is just something about the way you've written the book that's obviously clicking with people. And it's not just Ireland, is it? It's like I know it's going yeah. down well in um, England as well. And it's really like those structures are in so many places, aren't they? So it's it's really really relevant and really really timely. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks, Jess. For more information about It's Not Where You Live, It's How You Live, Class and Gender Struggles in a Dublin Estate by John Bissett, please visit the Policy Press website, which is policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk. Thank you, John. Okay, Jess. Great to talk to you.